Hello, this is Cassandra Horn with her guest star, Michael Inman. And here we are going to talk about the history of acting. Our first topic will be Ancient Greece. Our second topic will be Medieval and Renaissance. The third topic is European Influence. And the fourth topic is American Theater. Theater began as like rituals and festivals honoring the gods. For for example, um, the city of Dionysus. Festival honoring the god Dionysus, Dionysus, who was the god of fertility and wine. Performed with singing and dancing. Um, they the many different Greek stages were amphitheaters, which were semicircles, which were outdoor designs with stage facing and uh, tired seats. There was the orchestra, which is not the orchestra that we know nowadays with like the musical pit. It was a circular performance state. Then there's the female, which is the altar in the middle of the orchestra, and the goats were sacrificed during those. And then the skein, which were buildings behind the orchestra used for costume and mask changes. Now, the theater roles were very different than what we have now. We had the chorus, which in the early plays were played from two to three people, and then it slowly moved up to 12 to 15 people. <clears throat> Women were not allowed to act at all, and then they were uniformly dressed. The men were. There was the protagonist, and then the choreos, which, which were wealthy citizens selected by government to be producers or funds the chorus. And then that brings us into the Greek tragedy, which is based on the singing and the dancing chorus. Chorus functioned as community, commenting on protagonist actions. There were the protagonist actions, the background of mythology, and restoring the civic order. The prologue was the opening speech, the paradox was the entrance of singing and dancing choruses, the episodes was the central character engaging the chorus, the odes were songs and dances used to enlarge the play's pivotal issues, and then the catastrophe marked some kind of change in the protagonist's status followed their, by their departure, so something awful happening. And then the exodus is the final song and dance and the, de the departure of the chorus, which, for example, in our last musical at my high school, which is Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, we did the mega mix, which is when we did our bows and everything, but it's kind of like when we said goodbye to everyone. And then the Greek comedy, um, similar to the tragedy, but differed on subject matter. Not about gods or heroes, it was more instead about, like, everyday life. And then there was the Paribus, which a, was a chorale old ode delivered by audience discussing political issues. Then the Comos was a scene of chorale dancing and revelry, which I always get those confused. And then there were the Greek playwrights. There was Ecclesias, Sophocles, and Euripides. And that leaves us into masks. So, in ancient Greeks, Greek acting, they 
they only had masks, so it was if it was a drama, they had sad masks, and it was a comedy, then they had happy masks. They really had to rely on their body language, and not so much their faces like we do in modern day acting. So the masks were made from linen, which were attached to wigs, formed by the complete covering of the head. Masks were pantomimed and had closed mouths and were more natural. Masks for tragedy were more exaggerated. And then the masks for... Uh, comedy were exaggerated too, but not as much. And then you must be so physical with your character. Your body, you had to use your body more than normal, and then you have to let the persona um, help you with the influence with sharp or quick movements or slow and sluggish movements. And your posture really helped you a lot. Not just move it, movements, but your posture too. And then the rate and the pitch and the volume of your voice. Was it fast or slow, loud or soft, high or low? I think that's really interesting and I love the projects that I've done in my acting classes in the past. They're really fun. But I think Michael would like to give his point of view. How do you feel about like mass acting and you know the acting from ancient Greece with all the rituals and festivals for the gods from mythology? Now I never thought that they like actually sacrificed like goats. Is that true? They did every time they would sacrifice a goat. That is just crazy. And that's why during Joseph, they—that's when um, Jordan Killian, one of the brothers, went off and got the goat to sacrifice. Is Th that like a play on theater, like showing how they used to do it in the old days? Yes. That is just so interesting. It made more sense to me when I found out about oh, it. Me too. So, I think that's really interesting. But going on to our next point, which was medieval theater. So, our next one, like I said before, is medieval theater. There was a, a drastic change between ancient Greece and medieval theater with the Renaissance, too. Medieval theater were, were dramatic performances in medieval Europe, which were conditioned by the Catholic Church's central role in the life and community. The church had closed the Roman theater's opposed secular theater and yet responsible for the revival. They, they didn't like anything that wasn't about church. If it wasn't about church, you weren't going to put it on. There were the, liturg the liturgical dramas, which was a dramatization of liturgical of the Catholic Mass. Performances made in the center and were very clear of those who didn't speak Latin. Easter was the first event to ever be dramatized. So the first performance that like went on, that was a holiday. There were the tropes, which was musical performances amplifying the sculptural text and enhancing its impact and appeal. These compositions were set to music and sung antiphonal performances back and forth between monks and choir boys, which the videos are really cool if you ever want to look that up. Like, the monks will do something and then the choir boys will do something else. That's really interesting. And then there were the provided model of the religious dramas that would eventually be performed outside the church liturgically. Then the cycle plays dramatized scriptural history and performed on the fest corpse of Christ. The church oversaw the production of the Old and New Testament plays. So the creation, Noah of the Flood, Abraham and Isaac, Herod, 
um, and the last judgment. Plays could last several weeks, and the services, um, everyone came from the entire town. So the morality plays were dramatized elements of the Christian life or sim symbolic allergy of the Christian spiritual journey throughout life. So I think that's interesting. And then it also emphasized the individual struggle with sin. Um, coming from like a Christian standpoint, I think that's very interesting that that's all they acted with because that's all that was ever believed back then. And then the school or university plays were written and performed in schools, sometimes imitating classical plays. The structure of plays came for, from morality plays, like I talked about earlier. The liturgical dramas, the performance was the stage on mansions and plateaus. Mansions were small scenic structures, structures indicating locations. So the throne might equal a palace choir, and then the loft would be heaven, etc. The plateau was the general acting area adjacent from the mansion, or so to say, the small scenic structure. And then the cycle of morality plays were often acted on or near a pat near pageant wagons and a pageant wagon is something that carries the sets of productions on which plays were performed so small some towns the audience with stationery while the wagons came in and out other towns moved audiences from play to play while wagons were stationary in the field approximately the performance allowed the powerful relationships between performers and audiences which I think is really cool that they got to be that close to the audience but as an actor myself I feel like I would get distracted wouldn't you Michael I do agree I think I would get distracted by the audience if I had to act that close <laughs> and then the next point is the place of the local plays that could be easily transformed playwrights treated space as symbolic rather than actual geography and next we move on to the Renaissance Theater instead of much as the med medieval Renaissance Theater. <laughs> the location of the theater buildings and the structure of theater companies and entire the theatrical scene emphasize the tension of the English society. Henry IX divorced Catherine of Aragon and and excommunicated by the Catholic Church. He established Protestants' church and thus created division for power in England. The crowd limited and controlled public assembly, including theater. The laws prohibited productions of the English Catholic Mass and canceled feasts of the Corpus Christ, suppressing the cycle place. So basically, Henry IV took over everything. And then the drama of their performances, the plays in this period were about history in the classical history, city, comedies, heroic, tragedies, romantic, and other comedies, and plays that intrigued the satire. Tragomedies, tra which was a tragic event and a comedy put together, usually romantic plays that began with a tragic vein, but proceeded in a happy resolution. So I would say Romeo and Juliet, but that ended awfully. It became very popular later in that time, the blank verse was an unrived iambic pentameter line, which was ten syllables if you didn't know. Sometimes other verse forms, which were used by the prose and emphasis, were to develop qualities of this particular character. So I, I've done a lot of practice with blank verses, and it's, it's fun! The Renaissance performance was performing several plays in rotation throughout a season. 
perhaps as many as 200 a day, as perhaps as many 200 days in a year, plays were rapid and continuous. They never stopped. So, for example, Cornstock does about eight shows a year. So they do have a little bit of a break, but most of the time there's always a play happening. Open stage with little to no scenery and very large beds and thrones and things like that. So, like, there weren't very many, like, small props, like books and stuff on the table, but like there were big beds and big tables and important props, I guess you could say. Um, scene could be followed without interruption, so people could go in and out. Um, again, women were not allowed to perform, so there were cross-dressers, and they would play female roles. We had not gotten to this point where female could act yet. Um, the public theaters were, lar were large outdoor buildings with roughly circular shape. It held as many as 3,000 people. The th it, it was three stories, and there was an opening pit for standing audiences. The gallery levels above the stage had were for the people that could afford the money to pay, but the people on the ground were the poor ones who couldn't afford it. And then the stage had a thrust, and it was five feet high, particularly roofed. So, like, they were up five feet above the crowd. So, I mean, you could still see the audience's head, and they could still put, like, their hands on stage, which I feel like I would trip over them. But I guess it was just something that you had to learn to, to work around. And then there was a grave trap, which is a trap door on stage that you pull up. Uh, during rain, it, or you can lower the actors so they don't get rained on as much. And then there was the tiring house structure, which was the rear wall with two doors used for entrances, costume changes, and etc. Charged one penny for, for the pit and two pennies for the seating gallery, which I mentioned earlier. The most popular theaters were the Globe, which was Shakespeare's, and then the Fortune Theaters. Others included the Swan, the Rose, and the Hope. And there were private theaters, which were smaller indoor buildings for the elite, holding approximately 700 buildings, and the buildings located on the Liberties. Liberties were properties once belonging to masters outside the city's legal ju judiciary, but within the city limits. Theaters modeled along the line of banquet rooms, long rooms eliminated by candles, low stage at one end faced by benches, Flanked in galleries for additional seating, charge six pennies or more of basic admission, additional for special seating. So, let's say if you couldn't walk that far, that would be considered special seating. And then the next one we're going to talk about is theater companies and playwrights. But before we move on to that, Michael, how would you feel about being five, only five feet above the actors and having the actors be able to grab your foot as you walk by? It's, it'd be very distracting. I'm going to be honest with you, Cassandra. During performances now, even at the high school, whenever I look out into the audience and I see my mom and dad, I'm, I'm pretty distracted by them already. I don't know what I'd do if they were just five feet below me, grabbing my ankles. I'd freak out. I don't know if I'd be able to perform. You know, I feel like that, too, because in an actual theater, you have a seat, and you can't, like, get up and run and, like, grab people. But in that, I mean, it's easy enough to just jump up on stage. Agree. And now, for the theater companies and playwrights. The crowd maintained the, in the theater and was heavily censored. So whatever who was in charge and they didn't like it, it wasn't happening. 
The laws prohibited in entertainers from performing throughout the realm. It was classed with common the grants and could be arrested and fined. So if you did something that they didn't like, they would fine you. Michael, do you not like that? No, that is so... Not doing something somebody likes and being fined for it. But Cassandra, I guess that's just like nowadays though too. Just think about it. If you were to run onto a football stadium field after a football game, you'd get fined for doing that. So I mean, I guess we just kept that law going and going and going. That is very true. We just don't do it as much in theaters, I guess. Um, there were established pyramids, theatrical companies protected by the noblemen. So, I mean, the people were protected, but I don't think that they were protected as much as they should have been. And then, most of the performances were servants, and the company players could receive a license to perform in public theaters, which had a bond between the theater and the actress and now to move on from that point were the theater companies. London had or audiences prohibiting plays within the city limits. Elizabeth granted patents with the Lord Chamberlain's men, Shakespeare's company, and the Lord Admiral's men produ produced by Marlowe's plays. Theater companies had to show performances of the Master Ravel's Edmund Tinley to receive approval. So Edmund was the head guy in charge. I guess you could say he was like the god of theater. If he didn't like it... It wasn't happening. So it's just like you in theater nowadays, Cassandra. Really? You, you think so? I mean, I feel like that's more like the director's standpoint. Like, if they don't want it to happen, then it wouldn't happen. I mean, I'm just an actor. Agreed. The companies were organized as stockholding profit-making corporations, as businesses and, 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 and enterprises. Their economic survival depended on their public performances, their patent and their finances, only a few productions. So the shares put up the capital to finance the company and took a percentage of the profits. So they didn't even get all the money, and they were responsible for building or leasing the theater, hiring actors for productions, taking the apprentices, dealing with legal proceeds bought against the company, also involved all aspects of theater, including William Shakespeare's playwrights, and he's a, and he was an actor, Rich, Richard's Boo Badge's company, he was a principal actor, John Hemmings and Henry Condell, which is a, which was a publisher, and Robert Ardman, who was an actor. Life was hard in the Renaissance theater. And, you know, they paid flat fee for companies and scripts. Some amassed considerable fortunes, and most did not. Um, Christopher Marlowe lived between 1564 and 1593, had a university education, and had a reputation of iconoclasm. Iconoclasm was the rejection of destruction of religious icons. He was arrested on several occasions. I mean, this boy was a hot mess. I mean, he went to school, but he acted like an ignorant fool. He died from in injuries of a tavern fight. He got in a fight and he died because he, did he couldn't cool himself down. And then he his famous work was Dr. Fatidus. And then there was William Shakespeare, who was alive in 1564, born the same year as Christopher, and died in 1616. He was a commoner, not known whether to, to, he attended school or not. He married Anne Hathaway at 18 and had three kids. 
became the most popular playwright in London, and his famous work included Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, and A Midnight Summer's Dream. And speaking of Hamlet, Michael, I was scrolling through my Twitter feed the other day, and it was like this junior high version of Hamlet with all these emojis. It was... Where thou art thou, Romeo, and used all these emojis. And I was like, what did William Shakespeare do to deserve this? That is like the death of William Shakespeare. I bet he's rolling around in his grave right now just thinking about it. I mean, he was an amazing playwright. He knew exactly what he was doing, and this is the thanks he get. Way to go, 21st century. <sighs> Absolutely ridiculous. And finally, for the last part of the Medieval and Renaissance, it was Shakespeare's first folio. It was the first copy of Shakespeare's work published in, 19, er, in 1632, containing clues of actors about how the lines might be delivered, such as capitalization, punctuation, spelling, and etc. Many modern editors took these types as typos and revised them, but it wasn't. It wasn't a typo, and they should not have revised them. So, for the spelling, for example, many words had an extra the. For example, heary and keepy and againy and selfie pronounced exactly the same way they are today. So it would be here, kept, again, and self. But with the extra e is printed next to it, it equals extra stress on the word. So instead of me, it becomes me and E, D, and D were at the end of words, pronounced in accordance to the required meteor. Example, E, D was blessed, and pronounced blessed, but D would be blessed, and it would be pronounced blessed. And, for example, a single O, which, which would represent emotion, exclamation, and passion. So the moan or the sigh would be like, oh, or oh. You know, very different kinds of enunciation and emotion and passion. The punctuation indicated a place for the new thought or how long the breath should be in between lines, like notations of a musical score. A full stop was at the end of a thought. So you would say, my dog just went to the vet, and then there would be a period, and then you would count to two. So my dog just went to the vet. One, two, and then you would continue on to the next sentence. And then that would be used for a question mark or an exclamation point, too. So that could be either one. And then you could keep going with the thought thought until the full spot, until the full stop, no matter how long or short that may be. So full stops at the end of a verse line, a full breath. Try counting to three or two, like I said. A mid-stop is a full-stop punctuation found in the middle of a verse line. Finish with that thought and get on with the next. So it's kind of like a comma. You don't breathe or break the meter. So my dog just went to the vet and he got a cheeseburger from McDonald's. But don't feed your dogs cheeseburgers. Commas used to keep lines in the main thought going by linking many thoughts. So commas at the end of the verse line, quick catch up breath, and the propel of the next phrase. Vocally need to be lifted up with the voice commas to end the verse lines and make it more interesting and clear. Commas in the middle of the first line equals lift, which would mean to lift the voice and keep the energy up without taking a breath. 
So then there were the semicolons and colons, which used to join different parts of a thought so that the next part of the thought was related to the previous ones. Never treat them as full stops. Use them to take a quick catch-up breath. Try counting to one. So, for example, my dog just went to the vet. We got him a glass of water. Did you hear that breath right there? It's like a, it's a really quick breath just to go on with the next sentence. And then the colon stands for therefore or because. And then a semicolon stands for and. A parenthetical phrase shows us that the character have, was having a thought changing that thought into a new thought and then returning to the old thought. Indicated by parentheses and commas. To, to, to take a catch-up breath before or after the parenthetical phrase, delivery is more interesting if you shift in pitch and rate. And made with when introducing a new thought. And in the capitalization, do not ignore the apparent random capitalizations words have within the text. This means that they are important. The word can be used for irony, contrast, or as a tool for deeper emotional connection. Make it a positive or negative. Think of the tone of voice. And then the capitalization, not do not stress. Capitalization, not stress, are found to, in the beginning of the verse line and paper names and locations. Additional techniques, but, yet, and therefore, always indicate a change in thought. And then there's the repetition. It's completely unnatural to repeat words without good reason. By stressing or treating the repetition differently, whether it is repetition of sounds, words, phrases, or the meaning of the language becomes clearer. So long. So as long as you say second words or words differently than the first, it will appear natural. So Michael, how do you feel about all this quick stop, full stop, and after you say a sentence, you go, my dog went to the vet and we got him a glass of water, period, one, two, and then you go on to the next sentence. Do you think that's weird, odd, how, like what is your opinion? I don't think it's weird personally. Actually... Most of the time, I'm in speech, if you didn't know that, Cassandra. Mm. And I'm also very involved in theater at the school, just in case you also didn't know that. But I'm more of, like, the funny type of man. You, you get what I'm saying? I yeah. Do, I do humor. Well, I think that the invention of this whole stop, pause, stop, pause has really helped comedians with their, like... Comedic timing, you get what I'm saying? Like, when they when they get a laughter, they yeah. know how to pause. You know how to pause, and you also know how to pause and then hit that punchline, you know? Like, so then people think that it's funny. You get what I'm saying? I really think that this helped form comedic timing. Yes, I do, and I really think it helped theater as a nutshell. And the next point we'll be, we will be talking about is Italian theater. So Italy was most significantly significantly known for the scenic developments. The scenic developments were the Terence stage, a platform backed up with a continuous 
They stayed either straight or angled and divided into a series of curtains opening. Each opening represented a house for a different character. The names of the characters were written above the opening and were used everywhere, especially in schools. The perspective drawing was by Leonardo da Vinci. Spaced. The space was perceived as spherical, curving away from the viewer. Objects grew smaller and further away they were. So, you know, the farther away you get from a house, the smaller it is. Just how it works nowadays. And then the perspective settings were painted on flat surfaces and backed for the performance space. Perspective settings were primarily backdrops. Um, the backdrop that we used in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was white, but we could put whatever we wanted on it. All the different colors of the rainbow and the different flowers and designs and all the things that we needed for the different scenes. And I thought that was really interesting, didn't you? Yeah, I thought it was very interesting, Cassandra. Thanks for asking my opinion. And then the wings and backdrops. The wings were freestanding walls that added depth to the scenery. Around 1513, a single set of wings were added forward from the back scene shortly after additional wings were added. By the 1540s, these practices were standard and could not change and did not change for 250 years. The goal was to capture Vitruvius descriptions of theatrical settings. The Vitruvius theatrical settings were tragic scenes which were columns, pediments, statues, and other objects suited to the king, and the comedic scenes were exhibited private dwellings and balconies and views represented rows and windows after the manner of ordinary dwellings. And then the theatrical scenes were decorated with trees, carvings, mountains, and robust objects delineated in landscape styles. The next one was the Italian Innovations Part 2, which they had shifting scenery. The first example is a periactoy, which were structures with two to six sides and as the means of changing scenery. Each side had a different setting. So every time you would move somewhere else, quote-unquote move, you would switch the periactoy. I did a project like that, like that and it was much more challenging than I thought it was going to be. And then the new paintings, canvas covered coverings, were pulled around the wings, concealing previous visible scenes. Ultimately, angled walls were replaced with flat walls. How do you feel about that? Every time you go to a new scene, you have to change those walls instead of getting a new prop like we do nowadays, Michael. Have you ever seen Shrek the Musical? Oh, it's lovely, Cassandra. But that's kind of what they do now, and it's kind of like something that's been influenced by Broadway. Have you ever seen, like, big musicals where the sets always rotate and the new walls drop in, new walls drop out? Yes, yes. It's something that was influenced by this that was put on Broadway. Oh, uh, okay, okay. And then the next point was machinery, flying, which were characters were suspended above in the quote-unquote clouds of the stage, which was actually just the fly system, or the backs of animals. These figures were made of wood or canvases and then painted beams overhead in combination of ropes and pulleys at the side of the stage allowed objects and or characters to be flown in and out of points of view. Something that I saw over Christmas break, I went to this Christmas concert thing, and these six or seven snares 
come out of the fly system and they do this awesome drum rip thing and they just go back into the go back into the sky. It was so cool. And then some structures were hinged to flow up and overhead space unfold as they descended. And in many productions, transformed were masked by clouds that engulfed in the stage. And then there was the trap door. A figure would pa would paint it on the cloth attached to a pole and elevated to the slot of in the door. Michael, have you ever wanted to go into the fly system at all? Um... Actually, my freshman year, I did go up to the flash system. We walked up the stairs, we went up there, we looked around. It's very, very, very scary because you don't know whether or not you're going to fall. You know what? Actually, we might have went up there together because I went up there my freshman year. I went up the red stairs, up the other set of stairs, and then there was another set of stairs. You had to, like, kind of jump over this space because if you didn't jump, you are going to fly down and land on the stage and die. So. Are you for sure that you were going to die? I may not have died, but I definitely would have broken my neck at least. And then the last part were books on architectures and influ that were influenced by theaters. Surleo took for granted theaters would be existing rooms, fitted in a semicircle auditorium into a rectangular space by constructing the stadium-like seating around the orchestra. It was used to seat the ruler and his attendants. The stage was raised to eye level of the ruler. Perspective scenery was designed to be ideal for the chair. Front portion of the stage was level, but back was sloped up to increase the illusion of the distance. So I think that's really cool. I mean, they catered everything to the king, of course. But I mean that they used the illusion of distance. And then all scenery was placed in on this rank portion. The slope stage was created upstage and downstage. So how do you feel about that, Michael, having the different up and down stages? Well, in Shakespearean times... Going downstage actually meant that you were going downstage because everything was slanted. And going upstage actually meant that you were going upstage. But, Cassandra, if you ever have to think about it, think about the fact that it'd be harder to build a set for a stage that was at an incline. Because to build a wall, you would have to shave off the bottom so it would fit on the ramp. Oh, you know what? That is a really good point that I never thought about. But finally, English innovations. Women actors. Women were finally able to act on December 8th of 1660. Ooh, go equality! This finally allowed women into the acting companies. Margaret Hughes was the first woman actress on the English stage. Hughes played Desimona in Shakespeare's Othel. And in 1661, major theater companies had a full complement of actresses. Men only appeared in female roles as witches and old women, so mostly for a comedic relief. Women did not get the receive the same pay as men, and honestly, we're still at that point. Amen. Many male actors became playwrights, and but women did not receive the same successful transitions as the men did, going along with the women. The famous women were Eleanor Nell Gwynn. She became a star performing Restorian Comedy, <coughs> was Charles II's mistress. Afra Ben, the first woman playwright known to make a living as a playwright, wrote at least 17 plays best known for The Rover, parts 1 and 2. 
Now, Michael, how do you feel about women being able to act? You know, Cassandra, I'm a big believer in equality. Mm -hmm. So women being able to act in a theater actually puts a smile on my face because I stop and think about how many of those young women just looked up to those men when they were little, just wishing and hoping that one day they could be actresses too. And now we're at this point in history where they can. You can do whatever a man does. Don't you ever listen to other people. You can do it, Cassandra. That's right. I 100% agree with you on that. But, right after this, we will be talking about early American theater. Theater. In 1752, Lewis and William Hallam bought, brought their London companies to the colonies and started by Plain Williams in Williamsburg, Virginia. Lewis died in Jamaica, but family continued promoting theater. He went there to, to promote theater, actually, and then he died. Like, way to make your mark, I guess. The Puritan Theater re restricted American theater. Theater opens under the guise of moral dialogues. Essentially, theater focused on dialogues with very little set costumes and other things such as that. Eventually established two major theater companies, the Southwark in Philadelphia in 1766 and the Jones Street Theater in New York in 1767. The post-revolutionary war theater was put on to hold during war times. Post-war restrictions were re repealed with George Washington himself of being a theater enthusiast. A population expanded, but so did theater in other major cities. Baltimore, Richmond, Savannah, Annapolis. Expansion positively influenced standards of theater productions, luxurious playhouses being built, drastically improving scenery. Each new playhouse built the new the next best theater, or the new theater. Westward expansion also influenced theater. Playhouses were built in St. Louis, Chicago, and eventually in San Francisco. New York had emerged as the center of theatrical influences, largely due to the number of theater, theater companies opening within city limits. Post-Civil War theater, theater companies ex extended their life, their life of their show by crossing the Atlantic. England came to U.S. and vice versa. This was complicated by the lack of copyright laws. Plays were copied in order to cash in on popularity. Plays were copied badly, resulted in, resulted in inferior productions, tarnishing reputation of the original. So, you didn't have to go buy royalties or anything like that for the shows. You could just do Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat eight different times by eight different people because it was a popular show that people liked, and eventually it wouldn't be very good because there would be so many, di so many different renditions of it. The, per the period saw the emergence of the star system in America. Companies of various cities sought to excite their patrons of guest appearances with well-known well leading players from other cities. And finally, in 1896, theatrical, theatrical enterprises were led by Charles Foman, formed a national organization of booking agents. The first model of... 
National Theater in the U.S. Offers theater managers a full session of touring shows so long as managers dealt only with the syndicate. Gain exclusive control over theaters and key travel routes. Co um, the competition denying local companies to use their theaters had over control of 700 theaters. That's a lot of theaters to be in control of. And could blackball non-syndicate performers by threatening producers who hired them. And then finally, could withdraw support for managers who booked a non-syndicate show or performers. Now, Michael, how do you feel about having these people being in charge of 700 shows and not having any copyright laws or anything? That is not fair. I don't know what I would do, Cassandra, if my work was being used by a ton of yahoos slandering my name and I'm not even making a single dime. Exactly. And our next point will be New American Theater, also known as Vaudeville. Vaudeville is going to be introduced by my guest star, Michael Inman. Probably because Cassandra has to go to the bathroom. American Vaudeville grew out of life after the Civil War, marked, by, marked the beginning of popular entertainment as big business. Vaudeville itself meant variety entertainment. Pre-Civil War, theatergoers could enjoy Shakespearean performers, acrobats, singers, dancers, and comedians all in the same evening. In the early 1880s, Tony Pastoff took vaudeville structure but made significant changes, eliminating alcohol, questionable materials, and offered gifts to the audience, ham, etc. Pastor was trying to appeal to grow middle-class sense of refinement, attracted females and families, based audiences, gained success, and other managers followed suit. Benjamin Franklin Keith became known as the father of vaudeville, established a fixed policy of cleanliness and order for performers and audience alike. Actors were to eliminate all vulgarity and suggestive words, actions, and costumes. Audience were to remain quiet, remove their hats, and were not allowed to smoke. Performances were able to win over women, children, and even the Catholic Church. Can you believe that, Cassandra? I can't! Ensured a little bit of something for everybody. Developed continuous performances, 12-hour performances with bits being performed two to three times. Could you imagine performing something for 12 hours, Cassandra? I can barely perform Joseph for two and a half. Oh, yeah. That'd be a lot. Now, this allowed audiences to come and go freely, increasing sales and popularity. I wonder if they use wristbands, like at the carnival, or did you have to buy multiple tickets? Like if I went and then I left and came back, would I have to buy two tickets? I don't think so, not from my knowledge. 
and also created lavish vaudeville palaces. They spared no expense decorating the playhouse with marble, brass, large plate mirrors, hand-painted ceilings, leather-bound furniture, and whatnot. Created a luxurious atmosphere for audiences to experience. Vaudeville acts made up of anyone that could keep the audience's attention for two to three minutes. Comedians, singers, dancers, actors, musicians, acrobats, plate spinners, magician, animal trainers, and whatnot. Some of the most famous performers include Abbott and Costello, Charlie Chaplin, and Fred Astaire. Famous vaudeville acts, Painless Parker. With the help of a painkiller called Hydrocaine, Parker would pull teeth from 50 cents. He wore a necklace made of teeth he had pulled. Cannibal Richard. <laughs> Richard found out he had an unusually strong stomach, began with his friends punching and jumping on his stomach, had to limit his cannonball performance to the two a day due to pain. Wait. He could. He only took cannonballs to the stomach twice a day. I can barely take a punch to the arm. I uh, know. Normally, it's me punching you in the arm in the parking lot for slug bug. That's true. Lillian LaFlance would perform stunts on her motorcycle, most famous for the Wall of Death. Gus Visser. He would sing with a duck. I guess you could say that he had quacking good looks. <laughs> Le Petonman, Joseph Pahul, who made a living farting? Yes, he made a living farting. Did impersonations, melodies, and could blow out candles with just one toot. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, and now I'm going to give it back to Cassandra. I'm sorry, guys. Now we're going to talk about musical theater and how it came from vaudeville all the way here to musical theater. It was prior to the musical theater, there was blackface minstrel shows, vaudeville acts, which is what we just talked about, and European style. There was Gilbert and Sullivan, HMS, Pirates of Penanza, and etc. Origins date back to New Amsterdam Theater, the showplace of Florence Zingfield, and the Impressionera of musical theater. Zingfield's Folios, the series of elaborated theatrical productions mixed between later Broadway and high-cast vaudeville variety shows, songs, dancers, and comedy sketches represented the melting pot of society. Luxuring sets and lights, grandiose and beautiful numbers, famous for... For the Zigfields girls, beautiful chorus women that were paraded up and down flights of stairs as anything for birds and battleships. So kind of like those Rockette girls. They get based off their looks. If you're tall and skinny and you're pretty, you're in. Yes, I do believe, Cassandra. Have you ever heard the saying? Mm. Everything's magical at the Follies. Oh. And then there was The Showboat, based on Edna Ferber's novel, composed by Jerome Kern, winning an Oscar, and produced by Florence Zingfield. A complex plot about miscognition taking place in the Mississippi River boat called The Cotton Blossom, a material woman marries a white woman, or a white man, I'm sorry. 
and radical radical departure of European operas and the light musical comedies. Departure of the European operas of lights, musical, and comedies. Mary's spectacle and seriousness while focusing on storytelling created new genres where the play was a was the thing and everything else was subservient to the play. The song humor production numbers were single artist entity. The famous, the famous playwrights by Rogers and Hammerstein, an innovative partnership that ignited the golden age of musical theater. Richard Rose composed the music. Oscar Hammerson II wrote the lyrics and dialogue. Famous works include Oklahoma Carousel, Annie Get Your Gun, South Pacific, The Keen Eye, and The Song of Music, or The Sound of Music. And then there was Stephen Soundheim, an American composer and lyricist. Famous works included West Side Story, he wrote the lyrics, Gypsy, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way Home from the Forum, Company, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber on Fleet Street, and Into the Woods. And then there was Andrew Lloyd Webber, a British composer only talked about in America because of his because of all of his influence that came from America. Mm -hmm. The famous works included Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Go, 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 Joseph! Which is what our musical was. Go, 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 Joseph, you know what they say. And then there was Jesus Christ Superstar, Evita, Cat, and Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of the Opera is and now, Tiff, we're choreographing a musical number. Study the music, don't overdo it, utilize the repetition of the, of the unison, add special effects, know the set design, create patterns and shapes, and don't forget the character motivation. Never forget that character motivation, girl. Now, before we finish up, Michael, how do you feel about all this musical theater? I've always loved a little jazz and heart and soul. You know, Cassandra, people always have told me that I'm a pretty good singer. That's probably something you don't hear often, but I do hear it quite often. Oh, yeah? Pretty much every time I sing in the car. Hit that vaudeville note. I can step you up. Michael, are you happy that you were here with me today so we can talk about what we love most, which is theater? I'm really happy that I got to talk about theater. I'm really happy that I got to talk to this audience. Am I happy that I'm here with you? That's a question for another day. Oh. You're welcome. Well, thank you so much, Michael Emmon, for being my guest star. You're welcome. This has been Michael Emmon and Cassandra Horth Horn. Thank you so much. Good night, peaches. <laughs>